Well, last week we were in chapter 22, where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. God provides the ram. It's a picture of Christ, uh, our substitute. Then in chapter 23, uh, it's kind of a, a, a transition chapter, a cleanup chapter, where uh, it's sad, but Sarah dies, okay? Uh, she is 127 years old, and she dies. Um, and Abraham buys a cave to bury her in, uh, which is the only piece of land he owns in the promised land, but it's like he's getting a beachhead in the promised land. Now, the Israelites are going to go into captivity for 400 years in Egypt, but that's the, the, uh, 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 an act of faith. This is my cave. This is the, my burial place uh, because our people are going to come back to that, uh, that land. So that, in essence, is what's going on in chapter 23. Uh, today we want to go to chapter 24. Chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. It is 67 verses, three verses short of a 70-verse chapter. Okay, And when you read it, it's rather mundane material. It's about a man going on a journey to find uh, Isaac a wife. Um, and you go, why is this so important that it would take 67 verses? Well, here's the drama. Isaac is the child of promise. Through Isaac will come the Messiah, and the nation will be built through Isaac. He's 40 now. No wife. You know, before we were worried about Abraham and Sarah, they were too old to have a baby. Now we're getting a little worried about Isaac. He's 40, no wife. Got to have a wife to have a baby, right? So will God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham, through Isaac, the Messiah will come and the, the nation will be built, is that promise going to fail? So, this is why this chapter is so important. Um, Genesis 24, 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. So he's, he's taking a vow. That's how they did it. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So this is really, if I were to in, uh, give this, this uh, section a title, it would be Mission Impossible. You have to find, there's no e-harmony going on here. You have to find a wife for Isaac, but you can't take her from around here, from the Canaanites. Okay? But we'll go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. So here's your assignment. Get a wife for my son. Can't be from around here. Got to go 500 miles away. She can't meet him and he can't meet her. Go. That's pretty tough, right? The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Oh, so it's not just a salesmanship job. 
God's going to send his angel ahead and do all the background work to make this actually happen. Okay, verse 8. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now, the ten camels are important. Remember that. And you go, where'd they go? Well, here is the map. Uh, They're dwelling down here in Beersheba, and they go north about 500 miles back to Paddan Aram. Uh, Abraham uh, lived here for a while in Haran. This is the area in which he's going to look for a wife. Okay? And he made the camels kneel down. So he goes to, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water uh, at the time of evening the time when women go to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, so here here he's saying, God, here's how I'll know which woman is going to be Isaac's wife. Let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one to whom you have appointed, whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So I'll know it's the right woman if I ask for a drink, and she not only gives me a drink, but she waters my ten camels. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough And ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Now, you go, that's the sign, that's the spectacular sign that God arranged uh, for for Isaac's wife, that she will water some guy's camels. Isn't this kind of a, a normal thing? Well, you need to know something about camels. The typical one-humped camel in the Middle East, when they're dry, can drink in one drink 25 to 40 gallons of water. And they had just traveled 500 miles. So let's assume they're dry. They're empty. Okay, their tank is empty. That's what that hump is, right? So 
How many gallons would it be if they're dry and they can hold 40 gallons and there's 10 camels? You do the math. 400. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Let's check with my math expert over here. 400 gallons of water. What a woman. This wasn't like giving your dog a drink. She was working. She was, she was schlepping the water from, uh, from the well to the camel trough. Up, could have been up to 400 gallons. Now that's a sign from God. Okay, So then he introduces himself and explains that he's from Abraham and he's brought gifts and gives her jewelry and she brings him back to her family. He meets her dad and her brother. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but verse 34 through 48, he repeats the whole story again. Basically saying, isn't this clearly a sign from God? And the conclusion... Then Laban, that's her brother, Bethuel, her father, answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. Okay, this is clearly from God. This is unexplainable. We cannot speak to you bad or good. We can't say anything about this. This is clearly from God. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. You have our blessing. You've convinced us this is from God, or God has convinced us. Okay. then they, they get a little nervous. They go, but, you know, we're going to miss her. Let her stay 10 more days. And the servant says, no, I'd like to really get going. And then they go, hey, how about we ask her? <laughs> Is she up for this? And uh, the moment of truth, verse 58, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they get on the camels and travel all the way back. And Rebecca meets Isaac. They fall in love, and the, verse 67 says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here's the question. I want to get real practical this morning. Is this how you should find a spouse? If she's the right one, may she water my camels. Okay. Now, in essence, what the servant is doing, we don't even know his name, but what the servant is doing is he is laying out a fleece. He's saying, God, if you want, uh, if you want me to do A, then you perform B. Allow this scenario to happen. Uh, maybe a better way to ask this is, how do we discover God's will for our lives. Is this an example to follow? Now, um, I'm going to say this is no more an example to follow than many of the things we've already seen in the book of Genesis. I don't know that this is an example to follow any more than taking your son and uh, slaying him on an altar. I don't know that this is any more an example to follow than Abraham kicking Hagar, his, his other wife, and son Ishmael out and making them homeless. Not everything in the Bible is an example for, to follow for all time. Okay? So um, I would say this. This might be an example for you to follow if you're in the line of the promised Messiah. 
if a servant of yours is being sent ahead to find a mate for you, and if your father is a patriarch whom God speaks to regularly, if your father says, God has promised me that he's sent an angel beforehand to arrange this whole thing. If all those things line up, then yes, this would be a good example to follow. Okay? So here's what I want to explore. How do we find God's will today? Let me give you five things that are in the Bible that people still do today, but four of them, I'm going to put a big question mark over as to how wise it is, okay? Number one, prophecy. Prophecy would be God revealing his will by speaking direct words. God told me to do the following thing, so that's why I did it. Okay, I'm going to put a question mark on that. The other thing would be a fleece, laying out a fleece. God revealing his will by doing something unique that we ask him to do. If this is the woman, may she water my camels. Okay. Third thing people use to try to find God's will is reading signs. God pointing to his will through a miracle or unique phenomenon. Fifth thing, providence. God revealing his will by working through ordinary but unmistakable means. Okay. And then fifth, principle. God revealing his will through the principles in the Bible, rightly interpreted and rightly applied. Here's my thesis for this morning. My thesis is, now that we have a completed Bible, a completed canon, the wisest way to live is number five. And all of these, the first four, need to be submitted under the authority of Sola Scriptura. Good Sunday to talk about the Scripture being our final authority, our ultimate authority. These, these things, um, if God uses them, and I'm going to even put a question mark on some of them, um, even if he did, we would still say, let's check them against the final authority of Scripture. So let me touch on, on each one of them. Let's talk about prophecy. What's prophecy? God revealing his will by speaking direct words. Okay. Now, let's, let's say you're looking for a spouse. So many, and you know, at Moody, so many single kids go looking for a spouse. And they assume that God's going to tell them verbally who to marry. Okay? In today's passage, today's passage is not even an example of God using prophecy. God did not say, marry Rebecca. He didn't verbally speak about who to marry. This, uh, if he used anything, it's more providence and laying out a fleece in our passage today. So before you expect God to verbally reveal who you should marry, think about this. There's only two times in the Bible that I can think of where God verbally uses prophecy or verbally speaks and tells somebody who to marry. One of them is Joseph, who's engaged to be married to Mary, and he finds out she's pregnant, and it's not him, and he gets a little cold feet. So God, through a dream and an angel, says, no, go ahead, marry, marry. 
But, you know, when you're, when you're the earthly father of the Messiah, it's kind of a special case. I wouldn't say, well, God did it for Jesus, parents. He should do it for me. Okay? Um, the only other place where God verbally tells somebody to marry somebody is a prophet named Hosea, and he says, marry this woman named Gomer. And she will be a prostitute, and she will break your heart. So if, you, if you're going to demand that God speak verbally to you when it comes to this issue, realize there's not a whole lot of biblical examples, and you're asking an awful lot. Okay? You know, theologically, there's the two positions. Continuationism, which says uh, that God continues to speak today just like he did in biblical times. So uh, God told me this, God told me that. Continuationism. Then there's cessationism, which says since the canon has been closed, since the last apostle died, God has stopped giving direct prophecy. You say, what are you, pastor? Well, I'll tell you what I am. I'm going to cut through all the debate and say I'm a practical cessationist. What do you mean? Even if God did speak, and I am highly suspicious, highly cautious of how loosely we use that term, but even if God did speak, ultimately, because we have the closed canon, we have to submit it to the authority of Scripture anyway, so we have to treat it as less authoritative than God's canon. Right? But uh, people use that term very loosely. So when somebody says, well, God told me, there are times I'll say, so he, he verbally spoke to you? Well, no, no, he didn't, he didn't speak in words. Well, then how did he tell you? Well, I just knew it. I just felt it. So, so you're equating your feelings on the same level as divine revelation? We, we don't want to do that, folks. The last thing we want to do is equate our feelings to God's word. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the Holy Spirit convicts. He prompts. He illumines our minds so we can understand the scriptures. He helps us apply the scriptures. But this is very different than God directly speaking unmistakable words of revelation. The, the difference is when God speaks revelation, you don't question it. You obey it. When God prompts, leads, convicts, directs, there's plenty of room for our sinful desires to get in there. And we need to have a very humble approach when it comes to that. So, sola scriptura, um, prophecy or claimed prophecy has to be submitted to sola scriptura. Let me comment on the next one, which is a fleece. What's a fleece? God revealing his will by doing something unique that we ask him to do. We're the ones setting up the obstacle course that God has to go through to communicate to us. Okay? Um, the term fleece comes from Gideon in the book of Judges, Gideon chapter 6, where God verbally does tell Gideon, you are going to uh, defeat the Midianites. You're going to lead an army to defeat the Midianites. Okay? The problem with taking the passage on fleeces and making it an example to follow, there's two major problems with that. One, many times fleeces 
can be testing God. And remember, Satan's tempting Jesus to jump off the temple. And Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God. I'm to submit to him, but I'm not to test him. And laying out a fleece. So so what happened with Gideon was God promised him he would win. He does a miracle. Fire comes down and consumes this sacrifice. And then he's ready to go to war, but Gideon gets a little nervous. And he says, you know, just so I know this is really you, um, would you do this? I'm going to lay out a fleece, a piece of wool on the ground. And tomorrow morning when I, when I wake up, could you, to tell me that this is really your plan, make the fleece soaking wet, but the ground dry? And God does it. He says, all right, I'll jump through your hoop. All right, go. And Gideon says, all right, but wait, 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 wait. Uh, could you just do it one more time, but this time make the fleece dry and the ground wet? And God does it. Okay? Some would say, oh, that's a great pattern to follow. I think the context is saying he, he's, he's doubting God. He's, he's not, this is not a great act of faith. It's an act of doubt. In fact, Judges 6.39, let not your anger burn against me. He's talking to God. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. He's testing God here. And remember, Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So one concern about fleeces is it can be testing God. Second concern with fleeces, it could come really close to occultism. You remember when I was growing up, we had this thing called the magic eight ball and you shook that thing and there was like liquid inside and there was this dice that spun around and you would ask it a question. Shall I wear the brown socks today? And you'd shake it and then it would either say yes or no or maybe or shake again or something very vague. Okay. Um, but, but in essence, I mean, it's very close to the Ouija board. I want to know the future, so let's, you know, let's move this thing around. Let's, you know, God, if you want me to do A or B, then I'm going to set up a scenario so you can give me, you know, some people don't like to live with any gray. It's all got to be either or. So they set up fleeces and almost turn God into a Ouija board. And uh, Deuteronomy says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes. Let's not turn God into a fortune teller because we can't live with ambiguity. All right? Third thing, a sign. A sign would be God pointing out his will through a miracle or unique phenomenon that we interpret. Now, the difference between a fleece and a sign is this. With a fleece, we set the conditions. With a sign, we let God set the conditions, but we just look at something unique, and then we read what we believe God is telling us through the sign. Now, what's the problem with reading signs? How do we know we're reading it properly? Right? 
I mean, reading scripture is hard enough with the different interpretations that people come up with. How now are we to read a dark sky with a pink streak through it? What, 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 what does it mean? And we have a tendency to read into signs exactly what we want them to say. Let me give you an example. Paul in Acts 28 is in the shipwreck. And uh, he hands up on this little island of Malta. And it's cold and it's rainy and they're freezing. So uh, the, the people on the ship and the people on the island start to build a bonfire. And a snake bites Paul. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Snake hanging from his hand, that's a, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> He's a murderer. I mean, how, how often does this happen? Snake bite equals murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. That settles it. Snake hanging from Paul's hand, murderer. He, however, shook off the creature in the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they did, had waited long, a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> what's, what's the snake mean? Is it that he's a murderer or God? I mean, you can read into the snake anything you want. Right? Now, another danger is this. You say, well, that's an example of pagans reading snakes. What about an undeniable miracle? Shouldn't we be able to read God's will in a miracle? Careful. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. There are false signs. Satan can, can do some amazing things. So the problem with, with reading God's will into signs is usually it's we're reading our own will into the signs. And what, what's the interpretive key for the signs? Um, maybe some of you saw this. Uh, this is an overpass in Chicago a few springs ago. And uh, as the ice was melting, uh, the water and salt formed this stain on the concrete wall. It it's, goes under a street. It's an overpass. And uh, somebody said, it's the Virgin Mary. And suddenly people turned it into a shrine and they're bringing flowers and candles. And, um, you know, it's, it's clearly the Virgin Mary. I actually think it kind of looks like a big head with a guy with his mouth open here. Here's his nose. But, um, but even, what, what if it actually, a, a, a crystal clear picture of the Virgin Mary did appear on the wall? What does it mean? Are we to worship her? Are we to pray to her? Are we what? What does the sign mean? Okay, we can read whatever we want into the sign. It's like the guy who was on the way. Uh, he went to work and he announced, "No more donuts. I'm too fat. I'm not bringing donuts to work anymore." Next day, he shows up with a bag of donuts. 
And the people said, wait a minute, I thought you said no more donuts. He says, I, I, I wasn't going to do it, but on the way to work, I told the Lord that to give me a sign if there's an empty parking spot right in front of the donut shop that I'm supposed to stop. And he says, only after 12 times around the block, there it was. All right, so providence. What's providence? God revealing his will by working through ordinary but unmistakable means. Okay? Now, I believe in providence. I believe that God not only does miracles, but he works in ordinary means. And I believe we're to give God glory as we look back and we see how he worked things together. If we, sometimes we open it up and say, share a praise. Um, and people will say, well, God worked this situation out. Praise God. I think that's perfectly legitimate. Okay? The problem is trying to read providence on the front end as a sign from God. Because there are times when some pretty amazing things can all line up, but it's not God. Okay, my favorite example of that is David. He's being chased down in the wilderness by Saul. He's got 3,000 men trying to kill David. And David's running for his life, and he hides out in a cave. And it just so happens that Saul has to relieve himself, and he leaves his men outside, and he goes into the very cave where David is hiding with a knife. All right? So he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is it. Could, could providence be any clearer? God has set up this scenario where Saul has come in here unarmed by himself. You've got a knife. God has, has set up providence. Go kill him. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He's, he's feeling guilty that he ruined his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put uh, out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. What is, what is David doing? He's saying, thanks for your reading on the providence of God, but God has already clearly revealed thou shall not murder, and you don't kill your own king. So, reading providence here, revealed word of God here, David goes with the revealed word of God over what seems to be undeniable providence. Okay? So that leaves us with number five. Principle. Principle. God revealing his will through the principles in the Bible, rightly interpreted and rightly applied. Okay? This is how we should live. We should always be saying, what are the principles that the Bible reveals about this situation? And, and even if there seems to be, you know, an amazing providence going on, or a sign that seems to be undeniable, 
those things need to be submitted to the principles of Scripture. Now, we've been talking about finding a spouse. Okay? Here's what most Christians do. Woo, she's a knockout. Obviously, this is God's will for my life to marry her. Okay? But, but wait a minute. What about spiritual compatibility? I mean, Scripture does have a few things to say about who you should and shouldn't marry. Here's a principle. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't marry an unbeliever. Don't get married and yoked together with an unbeliever. But would God bring this beautiful person across my path if he didn't want me to marry her? Yes. Okay? It's, you know, that's, that's providence and circumstances and hormones talking not God's word, okay? And then, Scripture even has something to say about not being misled by external beauty. Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's the value that you're to have, uh, charm and beauty and all that. that that's, uh, don't be fooled by that. Your highest value should be her spiritual condition. So, you know, if we were talking to college students, um, they think, oh, well, I'm here at a Christian college, therefore, uh, you know, anyone will do. All, I mean, the qualification is just that they're saved, right? Well... Um, I, I, would, I would say, are they truly a woman who fears the Lord? I, I've told you this story before. I know a pastor who went to Moody, married a Moody girl, and she would wake up in the middle of the night and demons spoke out of her. And she ended up committing suicide in an insane asylum. Okay, I always tell the guys, before you date them, check for demons. Right? So, so when, when I first got saved, 1982, I found a tape, a, a, a sermon tape called How to Know the Will of God. It was by John MacArthur. Still remember it. His whole thesis was this. Spend your time living by the revealed will of God and don't sweat over the secret will of God. What's the revealed will of God? Still remember, five points. That you're saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, you know, growing in Christ, uh, suffering and submissive. Okay, five, they all began with the same letter. And he went through each one of those things, saying, you know what, if you focus on, on those things, on your sanctification and on being filled with the Spirit, and then... You can claim this promise in Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You're living by God's revealed will to the best of your ability. And, oh boy, should I marry Susie or Sally? Well, which one do you like more? Are they both godly women? Which one do you like more? He'll give you the desire of your heart. Okay, now the desire of your heart is not some infallible thing, but... People who have to have no ambiguity in their life, black or white, I need God to tell me what they end up doing is, is seeing signs, creating signs, or twisting scripture 
to justify what they want to do, when in reality, there are principles, general principles that we can live by. And I don't know that we have to live in agony over every little detail. God has given us his revealed word. You know, some of you say, I want to know God's will so bad. Here's my advice. Pour yourself into Bible study. Pour yourself into uh, the, the systematic study of Scripture. And that will do you far more good than signs and fleeces and owls and birds and all these things. Right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed so much truth to us. And Lord, help us to be cautious about um, running after that which is not your will and trying to force you into, uh, into jumping through hoops and laying out fleeces. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word and as we become uh, more and more adept at evaluating situations according to your word, I pray that you would guide our steps and give us the desires of our heart because those desires are ultimately of you. Lord, spare us from virtual occultic practice by forcing you to jump through hoops. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.